Welcome back to Awakening Reformation, where Reformation awakens now. My name is Grant, and I am joined with my beautiful wife, Erica, the weaker vessel. Hello, everyone. Who is epic right now. We are part of the Rebel Alliance Media, and if you would like to get to know more about Rebel Alliance Media or Awakening Reformation podcast, go to our website, rebelalliancemedia.com. There are four podcasts in our network. Fathers of the Faith for Covenant Kids is a family's podcast that we do on church history with our kids. That comes out on Mondays. The Rebel Podcast comes out on Wednesdays with P. Nate and Chris Poots doing an awesome job equipping the church to engage culture with a biblical worldview. We haven't given Chris a funny name in a long time. It has been quite a while. One of the kids just the other day, though, said... uh, Christoph with a K, right? <laughs> they remember. That's right. They remember Chris's many nicknames. And we got to give him credit that the Pro-Life Challenge was his idea. Yeah, that's true. And that thing has been awesome to see. If you happen. guys haven't done a the Pro-Life Challenge yet, just consider this us calling you out personally. Everyone. I know we were tagging specific All people. All ten of you. But... <laughs> But the dozen of you actually downloading this thing, go do your pro-life challenge. So yeah, get your video out there. Proclaim to the world why you are pro-life. Tag us in it at Rebel Alliance Media. Hashtag pro-life challenge so we can find your video and enjoy it. Yep. And go look it up. Doug Wilson, Andrew Sandlin, uh, Virgil Hurt, Toby Sumter, Joe Boot. There's been some uh, George Grant. There have been some incredible... You just like that his last name is Grant. I do love that his last name is Grant. There have been some incredible Christian pastors, authors, and thinkers that have posted videos for this challenge, and it's been really encouraging to see. There's some really awesome reasons that have been dissected and... Deeply biblical, theological. it's been really interesting to hear some responses. Joe Boots reasoning, pulling on the ontological trinity. I mean, of course. But. Right? <laughs> so it's been really awesome to do this pro-life challenge. And it's just, you know, the, the church obviously always needs a heavy dose of boldness. And it's been really cool to see people step up and put their videos out there for something that matters a lot. Yeah. So. And Ben Emery's been kicking butt on, like, making videos and compilations and just managing social media pages and just i mean it's been doing awesome too so yeah when i think of all that when i think of all that he does i think of those memes where the people are doing all the algebra and calculus and stuff and that's how he i mean i can't even post a video to instagram i'm like guys i need some tech help (laughs) it's a real it's a real issue so thanks ben and he's his podcast chris uh just wrapped up a couple weeks back i think right i think so i think he's all done with season one. Season two will be in the works mm-hmm. at some point here, taking another chunk of church history and looking at it from a biblical worldview. Yeah. Look at God's purposes in it, what was going on there. That was really good. But you can go back and listen to old episodes. It's pretty good stuff. So. Yeah. 
Anyway, we are getting back to our Covenant Theology series here. We had Dwayne from the Bar Podcast come on one week, mm-hmm. and then we did our Mother's Day Ladies' Night type episode the week prior to that. So we're excited to get back in the driver's seat and keep going with this Covenant Theology series. Heck yes. But we're going to start off with some listener questions. Yes. First of all, the two people who asked us questions, thank you so much. You guys are awesome. We always say, if you want to ask us a question, do it. And when we get those messages, our our hearts just light up. We love it. <laughs> we're like, wow, two people listen to us. Yes. Who would do that? <laughs> Crazies. Yeah. Gluttons for punishment. <laughs> So we are happily going to engage and uh, engage with these questions and and hopefully answer mm-hmm. them sufficiently. So the first question came from this one girl. She's from Kitchener. Christina Rotaru. That's my stab at it. What a babe. <laughs> Is that how you say her name? I yes. Christina, let us know if we said it if I said it correctly. I'd appreciate that. All right. Okay, so it's uh Homegirl's got like a set of brains on her. Can I just say that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, she is nose deep in this as we are with mm-hmm. Covenant Theology and it's really it's really awesome. Well the stuff that she posts on her social media page too, I'm always like super impressed with. I'm just like, dang girl, calm yourself, you're making us look bad. <laughs> All right. So she essentially has brought up many different kinds of Covenant Theology. Sixteen eighty nine London Baptist Confession, covenant theology, she brought up 20th century Baptist covenant theology, and then what we've been talking about in the first episode and what we'll talk about the rest of the series is what we, you know, we're... We kind of jokingly called it the OG covenant theology, and she just asked if we would clarify like what we mean by that. Yeah, so she asked that and also what are the different names for the different positions that people hold. She she names uh, Lincoln Duncan who has a covenant theology course that's very mm-hmm. popular at uh, Reformed Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. It's very helpful. Michael Horton has a book he wrote on covenant theology. Obviously, John Owen has some old stuff that she mentions. And and she's just wondering if there's names for all these different nuanced mm-hmm. positions. And then what are we talking about when we're, when we're saying OG right. covenant theology? Well, first of all, when we jokingly kind of called it OG covenant theology... We're talking about Westminster standards kind of covenant theology. And if you have a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith, in chapter 7, it kind of summarizes the covenant of theology, and you can have like all the proof texts if you have uh, an edition that does have proof texts, which are super awesome and handy. But I would encourage you, anyone who's interested in Presbyterian OG, haha. Covenant theology, get yourself a copy of the Westminster Confession of Faith with proof text because it can be very helpful when you are kind of like uh, listening along with us and you're wanting to do your own studies because the proof texts are awesome. Mm-hmm. It'll like walk you through all the scriptures. Yeah, exactly. So that's what we're talking about like Westminster type right. covenant theology. You know, Presbyterian Church is heavily rooted in. John Calvin's theology that's in his institutes, mm-hmm. and then that spread with John Knox to Scotland, and then there was just a heavy influence between Scotland and England, mm-hmm. and Presbyterians are basically concentrated mostly in those areas mm-hmm. in the six, early 1600s. The Westminster came out in 1646, so there's not a whole lot of 
time going by in church history, but it's mainly Calvin, Knox, Scotland, England. Mm-hmm. And that's where a lot of this started. And that's kind of what we're talking about with OG Presbyterianism. Yeah. What is Fesco's book on covenant theology? Word, Water, Spirit. Word, Water, and Spirit. So that's a really good book, um, which it's actually more about baptism mm-hmm. than just covenant theology, but you can't really talk about baptism without talking about covenant theology. Um, yeah, and so with nuances, like she's talking about, Michael Horton is a Two Kingdoms theologian. A lot, He's a advocate of the very sharp law gospel distinction, mm-hmm. which is a more Lutheran thing. And so his nuance may have some more Lutheran overtones. Mm-hmm. And he'll just call himself Reformed. I don't know if he would title himself as Presbyterian, but still a Reformed guy. I've benefited greatly from him. Mm-hmm. Disagree with a lot. You just got to be careful. That's all. Yeah. But that that's where you may see the the differences there. He's all millennial, you know. Right. And then you'll find a lot of 1689 London Baptist, um, Reformed Baptist covenant theologians who are post-mill. And mm-hmm. so then they're going to see things a little different in their covenant theology even, even yeah. though with Presbyterians, they don't see as much continuity. Mm-hmm. And then Lincoln Duncan will, he's not going to have that law gospel sharp distinction like Michael Horton will. He'll be much closer to what we are, but then he's not post-mill. So then some of the global application of covenant relationship between God and humanity mm-hmm. is probably not going to be there like a post-mill Right. Adherent would. So that's where you get some of the little nuances. A lot of it ends up with your um, your eschatology, actually. Yeah. Which the Westminster is pretty optimistic. <laughs> it is because the Puritans were. Just saying. Pick up a Westminster Confession of Faith. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Puritan Hope by Ian Murray. Mm-hmm. That'll tell you. That'll show well, you. Well, and that's why I do think that having a confession of faith and and learning about covenant theology mm-hmm. and the confession of faith is really helpful because it will talk you through things like um, covenant theology, but also eschatology and all the different variations, all the different implications of yeah. our faith based on that framework, you know? Yeah. It doesn't just teach like covenant theology, like their version of covenant theology, and then lead you there. It will actually walk you through like that um, outflowing of that mm-hmm. covenant theology. Yeah. It doesn't cut you off short. It will actually walk you through it then yeah. and what the implications are from that framework. Yeah. It puts legs on it. Yep. I think that's helpful. So thank you to Christina for your question. Yep. We really appreciate when you guys write us and just ask us or ask us to clarify what we mean by something. Yeah. It's helpful because honestly... We try and do a good job of communicating what we've been discussing typically all week long mm-hmm. and have written outlines about. But sometimes we sit here in our closet and we think these notes are not helpful and we cannot think of words. <laughs> That's right. And so we we just kind of pray over it. And, and it comes out mushy. And then, yeah. you know, you guys write us and ask us what we were talking about and we have a chance to clarify. So thanks. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So we had a second question, and this came from Jay Barinsma, and we were talking about how God's mind doesn't change and how God never changes and how that doesn't comport with dispensationalism. Mm -hmm. And so Jay wrote us, agreeing with us. Mm -hmm. He agrees. He's not dispy either. He is not dispy. However, he asked us 
how we would respond to someone or how would we reconcile for somebody. Exodus 32, when God tells Moses to let him be so he can consume the people Mm -hmm. with his wrath. But then Moses intercedes and Moses says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Remember the promise you've made to them. You know, Moses is going to say, oh, look, their God just took them out to the desert Mm -hmm. to kill them. You know, don't do this. And then it says God relented in his wrath. He Mm -hmm. changed his mind, I think is what the NASB actually says. Mm -hmm. So the wording is exactly that God changed his mind, Mm -hmm. which seems to contradict the other scriptures that say that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Right. And that's a really good question because if God can change his mind, then perhaps God could change his mind about a whole lot of things and we're in a lot of trouble. Yeah, where does that end? Um, also, in the instance that he was talking about where God was angry at the Israelites because they were being disobedient and sinful, the proper response for sin is for God to judge the sin. Right. And if God doesn't judge sin, then God himself is not a just God. And that would go against his very character as well, Mm -hmm. which puts us in a predicament because we really need God to judge sin. It's very true. Or once again, we're in trouble. So this is just a very strange portion of narrative because it seems as though God is not acting how God typically acts Mm -hmm. throughout the rest of scripture. Yeah. And I think that's the point. Honestly, I think the point of it is to like stop us in our tracks and say, whoa, 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 what's going on here? Right. This is not how God typically deals with sin and with sinners. And then we look at Moses and Moses is doing what with God? He's interceding between God's covenant people, the Israelites, and Mm -hmm. with God. Well, who do we know in scripture does that besides Moses? Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer. It's always Jesus. So Moses is acting as a shadow, as a shadow to Christ. Right. And so there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with seeing God react such a way to idolatry and sin right there at the foot of the mountain. Yeah. And then for him to relent because of intercession, because of mediation, Mm -hmm. he sends Moses down. Moses goes down there and gets Goes down to the furious. He goes down from the mountain and he sees the people acting in all of their wickedness, breaks the Ten Commandments. They're having an orgy, worshiping (laughs) a golden calf. He looks at his brother, Aaron, who was supposed to be in charge and helping him out. Yeah, but who turned into like, you know, when like mom leaves, then dad's like, woo, party. Is that what happens? No, it doesn't happen in this house. (laughs) But that's like essentially what you see happen is Moses goes up the mountain. They start complaining and Aaron's like, have a party? Sure, guys. That sounds (laughs) great. I don't want to die. You guys are going to kill me. Moses says, Aaron, what happened? And Aaron's like, well, I threw gold in the fire and then a calf came out. It's essentially what Aaron says. Yeah, something like that. And uh, you've got to imagine Moses looks at him just like, you think I'm stupid? Yeah. Breaks the two tablets. Goes back up the mountain. And then in Exodus 32, 31, it says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. <laughs> He's like, So, Lord, um, 
It's all true. <laughs> and this is the, the gospel shadow here. Mm-hmm. Is Moses says, but now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book, which you have written. The Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you, behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Mm. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Yeah. So I think it's kind of a good question because we're talking about, once again, the covenant of redemption, which is the covenant that God had agreed upon and decreed before creation itself ever. So before the Israelites were ever created in order to sin against God, he had already made a covenant Mm -hmm. within the Trinity to redeem a people unto himself. Right. That has always been the plan. So when we look at the story of Moses and God and the Israelites, it's intended to stop us. It's intended to like make us pause because up until this point has been like high action, you know, like mm-hmm. they cross the Red Sea and the uh, Egyptians are following them and then they mm-hmm. drowned. And then like all this stuff is like high action, high octane type of narrative. Mm-hmm. And then Moses goes up to the mountain and like this happens. And you're just like, this does not seem yeah. like what I was expecting. Big speed bump. So stop and slow down. It's meant to stop and slow us down and point us to the gospel and point us to Jesus and point us forward to Jesus and the Mm -hmm. fulfillment of the covenant of redemption, but also back to before creation when God did make this covenant with his triune self to redeem a people. Right. So this was not like something that surprised God when the Israelites acted this way. This did not, like, you know, throw its plan off like the dispensationals would say, like, mm-hmm. oh, dang, God failed. Now we got to try all over again. It's like, no, he already knew this was going to happen. Right. And he even said, in the day of judgment, if their name is not found in my book, I'll blot their name out. Right. Whoever mm-hmm. has sinned against me. Who has sinned against him? Everybody. Everyone has sinned against God, Moses right? Moses has. Yeah. Mo- and Moses wouldn't go into the promised land, actually, because of his own sin. Right. He was not the perfect mediator because he was himself sinful. Right. And God didn't say, okay, I'll blot you out and save them. Right. Because Moses that, isn't the, the Messiah. That wouldn't have been effectual. You know, right. that wouldn't have worked. Mm-hmm. So he was looking forward to, the, to Jesus, to the perfect substitute. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, is that all of the Israelites, all of the Egyptians, all of every other people of every other tribe of mm-hmm. every other, you know, time in history has been sinful because they sinned you know they're born into sin and they sin willingly and so he's looking to jesus and this is the point of the story is jesus well and and then you know we got to read the whole chapter i think a lot of times people stop at that one verse that one word the one word where it says and he changed his mind and Mm -hmm. right there they close the bible and go wow what sense do we make of this right read the whole chapter because when I read the whole thing, I really don't have a problem with he changed his mind because I see Moses, uh, you know, mediating and intercessing. And, mm-hmm. and then I, at the end, you see God does still punish them. He says if they are found, you know, still in their sin, not covered by blood, mm-hmm. 
Then, if they reject me as their covenant God, right, then yeah. they will be blotted out. Well, and that was the sin, right? Like the Israelites didn't, they were now worshiping an idol. They were no longer right. worshiping their covenant God. They were worshiping a different God. Yeah, that they were calling Yahweh. Yeah. And so if they continue to do that, if they continue to worship a different God, mm-hmm. as opposed to the God that they have been covenanted yeah. to, right. then yeah, on the day of judgment, their name is going to be blotted out. And don't we just see the patience of God in this passage too? I mean, it, Romans 2 talks about not presuming upon God's patience, that wrath is building and building mm-hmm. for those who just heap iniquity upon iniquity. And the whole Bible talks about God being slow to anger, slow to wrath. You know, he he has patience. Mm-hmm. And we see this here. It's him having patience. Yeah. But his justice, whether on that person or on Jesus, mm-hmm. is going to be exacted. Yeah. This is why covenant theology is so important, because it gives you such a great framework to interpret scripture by, you know, and how right. God relates to his people. This is why we say, I know it might seem daunting to understand mm-hmm. and to like really get into and dive into covenant theology, but it really alleviates you from problem passages. Yeah. I mean, it just really does. There's nothing in scripture that becomes hard to understand. And we always say it, like we interpret cloudy scriptures by the clear scriptures. and. It's like yeah. the easiest way to understand these hard, seemingly hard passages that really aren't that hard once you understand a proper covenant theology. Now, the problem with like Jay and his friend perhaps might be that his friend is dispensational. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be harder <laughs> to convince a dispensational yeah. uh, perhaps that this is a proper interpretation of the, that said scripture. But yeah. but yeah, that's what I would. that's how I would explain that scripture to someone. Mm-hmm. So, we kind of brought up the covenant of redemption already, mm-hmm. which I think is a great segue to just start going into the meat of our episode tonight. Okay. So, the covenant of redemption is an agreement made between the members of the Trinity to redeem a people unto themselves called the elect of God. This covenant was made before the creation itself, so prior to earth and the Mm -hmm. galaxies, and everything that we know uh, of creation being spoken by God, this covenant was made between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, Which we're going to show you from Scripture. Yes. And this covenant, like I said, was made between the three of them, and it was to redeem for themselves a fallen people Mm -hmm. as their elect. Right. It is essentially the plan of redemption. Yep. The plan that was blueprinted and made between the persons of the Trinity. It is often called the Pactum Salutis, Mm -hmm. the Pact of Salvation. What's the agreement made? And I know this is probably slightly heretical, but it's the each person of the Trinity's hand in the middle making an agreement. You do this, you do that, you do this. Because all three of them have a different role in salvation. So. It's heresy a little bit, but also not. Because they don't have hands. Right. But hopefully you forgive me and you get the picture. Okay, continue. <laughs> All right, so Matthew twenty-five thirty-four, we see Jesus say, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So we see Jesus communicating that 
this kingdom that God planned for, that God prepared, mm-hmm. was was prepared before the foundation of the world. That's what it means from the foundation of the world. Mm-hmm. It means when that began, there this, was a covenant. Yep, an yeah. agreement. This kingdom was already agreed upon. So one of the things before we jump in here that mm-hmm. I think is important for us to discuss is that there is this idea in even evangelicalism that the agreement between Jesus and the Father, because typically the Holy Spirit's left out, you know, he's just kind of like the power of God or something. Right, which is not cool. No, yeah, that is that is heresy. Um, but oftentimes it's like, you know, God... God is the one who, like, was super ticked off at his people because they were just these terrible, awful, Mm -hmm. rebellious children. And he just wants to, like, kill them because they're all little brats. And then Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Don't do that, God. I love them. Listen. Listen, Father. They're like my best friends. They are just so special. (laughs) They are so wonderful. And I just love them so much. I will die for them. And the father fuming with smoke Fine. coming out of his ears is like, well, you die or they will. And Jesus is like, I got this. And that's heresy. Yeah, for sure. But that is literally this idea that is propelled in most evangelical churches that Jesus is the one that relates to us and he loves us. Yeah. And the father is just this angry, vindictive like deity who just wants vengeance. Right. And that's like how they show how wonderful Jesus is that he uh, repelled the wrath of God for yeah. us and what an amazing savior we have. Right. And in the covenant of redemption, we don't see that at all. We see God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, all three agreeing upon mm-hmm. this covenant by which they would redeem this people. Mm-hmm. And all three of them have a different role. Yeah. So I think it'd be helpful to say that The term covenant or covenant of redemption in all of the passages that we're going to bring up is not there. Yeah. So that this is something that theologians and scholars have identified from the scriptures that this isn't, um, this has all the markings of a covenant Mm -hmm. and it's clearly about redemption. Yeah. And so they have titled it covenant of redemption. Now in, in the Bible, we see the covenant with Adam called a covenant Abraham, Moses, Noah, David, right. Jesus. The term covenant is used. This is the one aspect of covenant theology where that terminology isn't specific in the Bible, but from scripture, we can see that that is right. Well, and to be fair, what it is. the term Trinity isn't found in scripture either, but we can look at scripture right. and, you know, gather that, yeah, there is a triune God because God has revealed it as such right. There's in a, scripture. Yeah. God has blessed the church with teachers to yep. help us understand mm-hmm. the Bible. So so uh, now that we've kind of talked about what the covenant of redemption is, mm-hmm. who it's between, it's a covenant between God himself, his triune nature, yeah. um, triune persons. It's an intra-triune yes. covenant. Um, and actually, for those of you who haven't read John uh, Jonathan Edwards' The History of Redemption, yeah. It would be a helpful book, too, if you're interested in the Covenant of Redemption, because he does a really good job of discussing the Covenant of Redemption and has some very profound things to say. 
in a very Jonathan Edwards-esque type of way, which just makes your brain kind of hurt a little bit after reading it. You can't help but be edified after you read Jonathan Edwards. So, in the History of Redemption, he says, The persons of the Trinity were, as it were, confederated in a design and a covenant of redemption, in which covenant the Father had appointed the Son, and the Son had undertaken the work, and all the things to be accomplished in the work were stipulated and agreed. And besides these, there were things done at the creation of the world in order to that work. Before man fell, for the world itself seemed to have been created in order to it. Mm -hmm. The work of creation was in order to God's works of providence, so that if it be inquired, which of these kinds of works are the greatest? The works of creation or the works of providence? I answer the works of providence because God's works of providence are the end of his works of creation. As the building of a house or the forming of an engine or machine is for its use. But God's main work of providence is this great work of God that the doctrine speaks of as many more fully appear hereafter. The creation of heaven was in order to the work of redemption. It was to be an inhabitation for the redeemed. So That's literally what it says. <laughs> it was to be in A-N habitation yeah because they would do a n before h so rewind the last two minutes so i do no grammar but I, it's just jonathan edwards <laughs> forgive me it's 1700s english um <laughs> it I hurts my brain a little bit though rewind the last couple minutes listen to it again probably be <laughs> beneficial but he's essentially saying you know like when you build a house the greatest thing wasn't building the house. You build it so you can do the great things which are living in the house mm -hmm. or using the car engine. Mm -hmm. And and so God creating this universe, creating us, was to have a people to live in his creation, to enjoy him, mm -hmm. to enjoy life and and do all those sorts of things. Now, we go back to our Burkhoff episode of whether you're superlapsarian or mm -hmm. infralapsarian where the fall was ordained in god's plan but regardless the fall was allowed um it was ordained mm -hmm. to some degree or another and and god made a plan to redeem a people and to live in glory with them and so that's what jonathan edwards is getting at yes the the main the heart the heartbeat of this covenant redemption is so god could do that which is glorious mm -hmm. that's amazing that's what all of us are looking forward to from the beginning of time we've always been longing for that day right the creation groaning for that day when we can live in glory that's what romans 8 mm -hmm. is largely talking about um and that is the effect of the covenant of redemption right right so that would be reconciliation god's glory and also this is the foundation for the covenant of grace. Right. So I've heard it said that the covenant of redemption is the covenant of grace in the eternal realm or eternal, you know, area mm -hmm. in eternity. Mm -hmm. And then the covenant of grace is what we see in history. Yeah. So that might be very confusing. We'll get into that later on. Don't worry about that. Um, for those of you who do know what we're talking about, that might be helpful for everyone else. Just hang on. We'll get there. Buckle up. Yes. Okay, so who was redeemed or who was going to be redeemed, who was planned to be redeemed in this covenant of redemption? I think we have to be careful because when God made this covenant of redemption, this covenant was not to save all people, right? Like we are not as universalists. Right, because if it was, 
then all would be saved. Right. Which is what universalism is. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The covenant of redemption essentially becomes the foundation for the doctrine of election. Yes. Meaning there was one people group, and we're not talking Jews, we're talking people from all different ethnicities and nations, but some from every nation coming together and being the elect bride of Christ. Exactly. Did I specify and clarify <laughs> that enough? I hope so. In John John 6, Jesus said too, he said, the, this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Mm -hmm. Jesus says there was a plan. I was specifically sent for a people that my Father is going to give me, and I don't lose any of them. Burkhoff points out that there is the elect people of Mm -hmm. God, but also elect angels. Right, yeah, scripture clearly tells us that there are elect angels and fallen angels, which most people know all about fallen angels and right. demons. and. So are you saying that demons can get saved? Not at all. <laughs> That's not what we're t- <laughs> not talking about, like being redeemed in that sense, because the Bible says that hell was created for Satan and his yeah. angels. I'm pretty sure their destruction is sure. Yes. So, But there were a specific elect angels that did mm-hmm. not fall away. I mean, there's just nothing that happens outside of God's providence. Yeah. So, but. And his ordination. So. That was covenanted as well. Um, okay. So, where do we find this covenant in scripture? So, I like to go to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 4. Boom. And following. Because after I believed in the doctrine of election stated in Ephesians 1, mm-hmm. I remember learning about this covenant of redemption, I'm like, well, yeah, that's Ephesians 1 is just basically Paul's way of explaining the covenant of redemption. So starting in verse 4, Paul says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, there Mm -hmm. you go, that we might be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Mm-hmm. Which does away with that mean, nasty, ugly father. Right. This was the father's purpose. How can I get these people back to me? Mm-hmm. Son, we need to redeem them. Mm-hmm. Verse 6, he says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, not his anger, <laughs> his yeah. grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And so it goes on and on and on. It's Second Thessalonians 2.13. And then Second Thessalonians 2.13 says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit. Mm -hmm. So there's a third person in the Trinity involved with this redemption planned before the foundations of the earth were laid, that we would have faith in the truth. 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, Who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us, in Christ Jesus from 
all eternity. And just so you know, we're not making this up. Can <laughs> you read James 2, 5? And James 2, 5 says, Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? First Peter 1, 2. And First Peter 1, 2 says, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And then Ephesians 3.11 says, This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he, the Father, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. So. I mean, it's just, it's clearly a biblical concept. Yeah. And this is, I mean. You have to throw away a lot of scripture if you're going to disagree on the covenant of redemption. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much more clearer you can be that before time began, God made a plan with his son and with the spirit to redeem a people, to make them holy, to adopt them, to forgive them, mm -hmm. that they would be redeemed by Jesus' blood. Mm -hmm. And so Jesus dying on the cross and, and that mission to come and die on the cross and shed his blood and become a sacrifice, that plan was made before the foundations of the earth were laid. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's briefly talk about the ro different roles in this covenant. Okay. Okay, so the son's role in this covenant, Jesus's role. So obviously he was the head of the covenant, mm -hmm. Hebrews 7.22. And so Jesus is the head of the covenant, and this is where we see the link with the covenant of grace too. And the covenant of works, because for Jesus, the covenant of redemption was the covenant of works. I don't mean to say he's the covenant of works. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. saying he is the head of uh, this covenant because for Jesus, it was the covenant of works. Yeah. So Jesus being the one to carry out this covenant of redemption, his work there, mm -hmm. and then also in conjunction with the covenant of grace, Hebrews 7.22 says, So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Mm -hmm. And so it's just pointing out that Jesus' work on the cross and his life is is how we know that the the promises and the benefits of this contract this agreement this covenant are a guarantee is through Jesus the head mm -hmm. and so for Christ this covenant was a covenant of works because in order for Jesus to actually fulfill the covenant of redemption, he would also have to fulfill the covenant of works, which was perfect obedience, um, living the perfect life mm -hmm. so that he could redeem for himself the elect. Yeah. So for the, for the second member of the Trinity, this mm -hmm. was him fulfilling the covenant of works. And yeah, we'll and Jesus clarify says- clarify that a little bit more later on on our next right. episode. Yeah. We talk about the covenant of works, but- and Jesus said multiple times, I've come here to do the works mm -hmm. that my father has given me to do. Yes. Okay. So. His work is limited by election. And you talked about election. Mm -hmm. We've kind of already touched on this, but like his work was limited. It did not save everyone. It was specifically for the elect. Right. It was efficacious yeah. for the elect. And it's, and it's efficacious to redeem the whole world in that. Even creation itself is going to be renewed and reconciled at the end of the age. And 
that God's glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea as time progresses, that Jesus' work is going to continuously make dead people alive more and more, and eventually the whole world will be saved. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. that's that ends up being what the Bible is talking about when it talks about the whole world being saved through him. And there's a couple passages that talk about that. And okay. that's what it's pointing to. So I just want to briefly... I just want to briefly talk about... Hot off the press. Yes. <laughs> My goodness. I just want to go back to Louis Burkhoff's Manual of Christian Doctrine. I'm on page 154, if you have this book, if you want to read it yourself at home. Mm-hmm. But... He says, the covenant of redemption and the use of the sacrament by Christ. This is like the subhead. Okay. Christ used the sacraments of both the Old and the New Testament. Clearly, they could not mean for him what they mean for believers. They could not be symbols nor seals of saving grace. Neither could they be instrumental in strengthening saving faith. In all probability, they were for him signs and seals of the covenant of redemption. He used them in the official capacity as the representative of his people. He was burdened with the guilt of his people, and the sacraments could signify and seal for him the removal of this burden in the fulfillment of the promises of the Father. And insofar as he, in the capacity of mediator, was called upon to exercise faith, though not a saving faith, they could also serve to strengthen this faith as far as his human nature was concerned. So again, being a substitute. Mm Mm-hmm. I just thought that was really good and really helpful because we talk about how every covenant has like sacraments. Yeah. Yeah. And so we see that for Jesus, he partook of both the old and the new covenant sacraments. He was circumcised and baptized. He was, Mm -hmm. um, he participated in the Passover and he instituted the Lord's Supper. Yeah. Yeah. So I just thought that was really helpful. I mean, to fulfill all righteousness is what's popping up in my head, you know? Yep. And it, again, shows us just what a perfect substitute Jesus was Mm -hmm. for all of time. (laughs) He covered it all, you know? Yeah. So. Way to go, Burkhoff. Burkhoff is pretty awesome. So that was a little bit of Jesus's role in this Mm -hmm. covenant. And then there were requirements and promises in the covenant for the father. So the role of the father in this pactum salutis is that what Ephesians 1 talks about. It was his will. It was according to the grace he lavishly poured out. His plan. through. Yeah, it was his plan that he made. And so he's, he's the person developing the plan and laying out how it's going to go, mm-hmm. essentially, for lack of a better way of explaining it. Mm-hmm. But that's what we see the, the father doing in Ephesians 1. Right. According to his purposes. This is common language when, yep. it, when the Bible talks about this. So Jesus is the head, the new head of the people, giving, working out the salvation for the people, redeeming the people. Mm -hmm. God plans, um, Jesus does, and then the Holy Spirit's role in all of this is the power by which Jesus is able to save a people unto himself. Yeah, the Holy Spirit is the one that applies the redemption to those elect people. Yes. That applies the benefits of the well, cross. Well, and, and aids Jesus in his temptation. Yeah, yeah he fills and, the, anoints the Messiah and, yep. and uh, empowers him to fulfill the work mm-hmm. that he needs to do as part of his yep. 
um, part of his requirements in the covenant. So this is why we say all three members have made this covenant and have a role and they have a job, I guess you could say, within mm-hmm. this plan, this covenant of redemption. Right. So briefly, there are some requirements and promises in this covenant that the father requires of the son. And that was to assume human nature. Jesus had to be born mm-hmm. human. And I was listening to Sproul talk about the covenant of redemption. Yeah. He was talking about how when he asked people, what did Jesus do for you? A lot of people will respond with, oh, he died. Jesus died for my sins. Right. And Sproul was just kind of uh, jesting, I guess you could say. And he was, I guess, languishing over the fact that people would boil down Mm-hmm. redemption to such a minimalistic state where right. Jesus just died for you. Yeah. He's like, well, if all that was required was for Jesus to die for us, why didn't he just come down, die, and be done with the whole thing? Why did he come down as a baby and live for 33 years and have this ministry? Right. And like, yeah. what, what is all that then? If all he needed to do was just die for us, what was what was that 33 years for? And he was just saying that in order for Jesus to redeem us he had to be human he had to be born of human nature so that he could gift us all of his righteousness all of the fulfillment of the law all of the right standing he had before god had to be transferred to us and he took on our sinfulness and in order for this to happen he had to be born and live a human life to fulfill all righteousness like you said yeah that's really good So that was very important. Yeah. And then part of the agreement was that what Jesus accomplished and what Jesus merited through his work, Mm -hmm. through his work on the cross, in his resurrection, ascension, all of that is to then grant us the same merits. We're heirs of, of the son. We're heirs of what he accomplished. Yep. For sure. So then the promises of the father to the son... And he, this is like a whole, I have a huge list written out, and we probably won't talk about every single one of these. Okay. But one of them is that he would prepare for him an unblemished, sinless body. Jesus did not have a sinful a sinful nature in the sense of he wasn't born in Adam. Mm-hmm. He wasn't born under the curse, you could say. Right. Being born in Mary means that Jesus wasn't born under Adam, mm-hmm. the federal head Adam. And so he escaped that curse of original sin mm-hmm. with, so he could maintain his sinlessness. And this is a miracle. Yeah. And he still had a sin-ridden body. Like he got sick. Tired. Yep. Took naps. But as far as the the penalty that we all have because we're born under Adam, Jesus was not. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the new head. He's the new Adam. And that was something that was unique to Jesus. Right. Another promise that the father gave to the son was that he would give him the spirit without measure. I'm just going to read these off. Okay. Um, just because we're getting kind of short on time, but that he would support his performance, enabling him to destroy Satan and establish his kingdom. Yep. That he would deliver him from the power of death, that he would be, you know, resurrected. He would not stay dead. That he would exalt him to his own right hand giving him all power and authority on heaven and earth, that he would enable him to, by way of accomplished atonement, uh, send forth the Holy Spirit to the elect, 
that God would also receive honor and glory. And I just kind of want to end with this, that all of the point of all of the covenants, all of the reasoning between, you know, the covenant of redemption, between the covenant of works and grace and everything in between, all of creation, all of history, all of it is to glorify God. All of it is to give God glory. This is not because mankind was so great and so special and that we are the center of the universe. All of this is to cause us to stop and say, look how great God is. Right. That's what Ephesians said is to the praise of his glorious grace. Yep. But I think what a lot of times when we start getting into covenant theology, if we're not careful, we can lose the glory and the majesty and how Mm -hmm. all of this is causing us to just be like, this is insane that God would do this for a measly people. Yeah, we can kind of get caught in the weeds or get caught in I think we can put ourselves the details. Yeah, I think we can put ourselves in like the 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 lead role, you know, that we are the yeah. ones that are kind of the point of all of it, and it's certainly not. Right. We we think God made these covenants f- just for our benefit or mm-hmm. for us. And it does benefit us. And we are super grateful. Yeah. But it is certainly to the glory of God. Yeah, that's the ultimate end of it all. So this is very much the shortened, condensed. I mean, we could just keep going with it. You know, a, a lot of what Erica just said in pointing out what the father promised the son, if you read the Gospels, or maybe they were kind of popping up in your head as you listen to her read those, as you read the Gospels, you see Jesus say all this kind of stuff. The father's promised to protect me and and do all these things during my ministry, and then he's promised yeah. me the nations, and he's promised me all this kind of all stuff. All authority on heaven and earth has been given unto me. Yeah, First Corinthians uh, 15 talks about the kingdom being given to Jesus. Like, there's all this stuff wrapped up in a pact that was made before time began, before Jesus was ever here, before mm-hmm. anything. Before it all, yep. this this was, uh, this was what was going to happen. Yep. So I hope that's clear. And comforting. That's a comfort to know that there's nothing that surprises God. And I know we talked about Jay's question before we started all this. But in light of all of this covenant of redemption, when we do look at, you know, that story in Exodus, it's like God knew all that. When God looked down on the Israelites who were being rebellious, he already was like, I made this plan with Jesus. Like, Mm-hmm. The Holy Spirit are, and and Jesus and I, we've already got this under control. So, mm-hmm. yeah, this is wrong and this is sinful, but guess what? Something's coming. And on the day of judgment, they're going to be either found in the covenant and they're going to be part of my family or mm-hmm. they're not. And justice will be done. God did not overlook sin in that moment for the sake of Moses. He did not look at Moses and say, yeah, you're going to be a great mediator. Good. He didn't say good idea. Yeah, he, yeah, exactly. He did not look at Moses and say, I'm so glad you're great at mediating. Yeah. Now I won't kill this people. Right. Moses's uh, role in that story, in that narrative, is pointing us to what Jesus was going to do mm-hmm. in this covenant of redemption yeah. by the Holy Spirit's power in the plan that the father had drafted up yeah, already... bef- before all time. So I don't know if I worded that correctly, but... But you're right. It's comforting. The doctrine of God's sovereignty, the doctrine of election, you know, Calvinism gets such a bad rap, but it's a comforting doctrine. This world is nuts. 
and sin has wreaked havoc on God's creation and we can't get a grip on it. So seeing from scripture that God has a plan in it all and that yeah. he's he's controlling it all yeah. is comforting. I don't know how you get through some of the darkest moments of life. Yeah. Without understanding all of this. Yeah. Well, Maybe not all of this, but like the while rejecting God's Yeah, the overarching the overarching narrative which is that God has it all under control and he's mm-hmm. redeeming all things. You like yeah. without that Man, it just seems like all is lost. So true. So we hope this episode was helpful and beneficial and that it was somewhat clear. Again, please send us your questions. If something was unclear like and you'd like to clarify. We just need to, to do episodes on clarifying <laughs> everything. <laughs> or maybe you're not going to send a question. I don't want them to clarify. You'll just stop forever. listening for the next <laughs> few episodes. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, thank you for listening, though. Please go subscribe to the feed on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher and uh, get all the new content when it gets released. Again, post your pro-life challenge video with the hashtag and tag us so we can and see And tag it. some friends, guys. We want this to spread. Yeah. You know, part of the pro-life challenge thing was in response to some of the more uh, despicable abortion laws that have been passed recently. Right. I could think of Governor Cuomo and the Governor of Virginia and uh what is right. it? Alabama Alabama? Was no, that no no definitely not Alabama. No, no. It was it was a senator or a congressman or something in, in Alabama, I think it was, that said that we can either kill babies now or we can kill them later. Oh yeah. Yeah. I think, so, it, I think it was Alabama. And basically what we want is like we want people to see, you know, actually being pro life is not a minority position. Right. And we're here. Governor Cuomo said that pro-lifers are not welcome in New York. Guess what, Cuomo? Yeah. Here we are in Brooklyn. Come find us in our closet. And there are a lot of states. (laughs) (laughs) Here we are. Uh, There are a lot of states pushing good legislation to have abortion outlawed. Oh, yeah. Heartbeat bills and a lot of different things. We are gaining ground and we are gaining momentum in that we're wanting to Keep that going. We want well, it's the pushing back darkness. Well, so we're right, pushing yeah. against the Cuomos and the yeah. people who are making terrible laws. But also, we are encouraging people who are standing up mm-hmm. and are creating and legislating good laws yeah. and encouraging the pastors who are speaking out in their cities. Like By us making these videos, yeah, we're pushing feel... against darkness, but we're also encouraging people who feel alone. Yeah, exactly. So, So go do it. So go do it. So go do that video. So go do that thing. Yeah, that's right. All right. We're done. And we will <laughs> see you next week. We okay, pray. Okay, bye. Okay. We pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened by the power of the Spirit. And until next time, get woke. Yeah. Let's start with the microphone check. One, two, first. Water to the dry and weary soul of the true church. The kind of things that few search. They say that the truth hurts. Well, this pain is gained, so let's explain the new birth. First things first, can't neglect this at the start. I must preface my remarks with the deadness of the heart from original sin. The effects of the fall. The sin of our first parents brought death to us all. Since Adam was our federal head, what he did counted for us. In him were all rebels and dead. Yo, captured in the mind, disaster, sin and crimes in a Dark state, Alaska in the winter time, sour in our frames. Left to ourselves, we be devoured in the flames. Cause we're powerless to change. If you feel that way, I pray that you respond happily. As you see what Jesus had to say in John chapter 3.